Oh no! Can I talk? I, I, that's the part of the podcast I was hoping to. I, I was like, I'm not interested in this other stuff. We can just I went just say so. Something? We can just I, went so long on it. I just thought. No, I know. But can we? Can we? Can I just give my two cents as a closing? Hi everyone, welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. How's it going, Jeff? I'm I'm doing well. I'm, I'm glad you're well. I'm doing okay, too. A uh, couple of things on the agenda today. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia. We, we've been on a Ukraine you know, run for a while, um, so it might be time to broaden our horizons a little bit. And we had a couple of questions come in from um, our audience. Thank you for everyone who submitted a question. A couple of questions about Saudi Arabia in kind of various aspects related to U.S. foreign policy. There's a big story this week in the uh, New York Times that was kind of echoed by a couple other places talking about a U.S. initiative to really sign some kind of defense alliance with Saudi Arabia. And I thought we could talk a little bit about what this means for U.S. foreign policy, why the United States would want to do this kind of thing, the pros and cons of uh, this kind of approach to dealing with Middle East peace. I think the kind of main backdrop for this story is U.S.-Saudi relations over the last several years not been great, I think, fair to say, beginning with the, the Biden administration tried to take a tougher line on, on Saudi Arabia. I think Biden, during the campaign, called Saudi Arabia a pariah um, in the international community for its human rights violations, the, the murder of a human rights activist and the Saudi embassy in America, which is a big um, you know, kind of slap in the face to a supposed ally in addition to being a, a horrible crime. And uh, then some trouble getting Saudi Arabia on board in dealing with rising oil prices and the sense that uh, the Saudi leadership was trying to make things more difficult for the Biden administration in both the kind of international arena and domestically uh, by kind of messing with, with oil prices and refusing to go along with U.S. Um, ideas about how, how, oil should, how oil supply should be handled. And so that's kind of the backdrop. And then we get to this initiative by the United States to try to create a alliance with Saudi Arabia in the mold of our East Asian allies, uh, Japan and South Korea. This idea that it would be kind of a real commitment to collective defense, not quite a commitment at the level of NATO, which is kind of the highest standard of defense alliance in the U.S. portfolio. But the alliance with Japan and South Korea is just below that. And the idea here would be to create that kind of a firm alliance with Saudi Arabia as part of a broader initiative to get Saudi Arabia to open diplomatic relations with Israel and create a better relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So there's a lot going on here, right? There's the, the Asia comparison. There's the backstory of U.S.-Saudi relations. There is China. China's always in the story these days. And then there's a kind of idea about peace in the Middle East. Lots of ways to cut into this story. Marcus, do you want to kind of kick us off? What do you want to talk about about this story? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I think it's complicated. I think there's lots of different ways to think about it. I mean, I guess one of the things that struck me in reading the article, and then also just thinking about um, this relationship, and, and I'm a I'm a first image kind of individuals matter, you know, leaders matter uh, type of person. So this won't be surprising to you. The the sort of MBS Biden relationship, or frankly, the the MBS relationship with any sort of you know U.S. president, let's say you know Trump wins M MBS. Just for those not in the in the down with the lingo, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi uh, crown the, prince, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is by in charge in, in Saudi Arabia, right? The I think it's fair to say he's in charge. Yes, yeah, he's in charge, and 
um, as you as you sort of alluded to when you were introducing the story, very controversial uh, for lots of different reasons um, in in the United States, and there was a lot of sort of disdain when um, you know Biden had that sort of infamous moment where he gave MBS the the fist pump um, or fist bump, I guess. Um, and you know, basically, a lot of of you know, sort of Americans kind of thinking that that Biden uh, hasn't been strong enough on on Saudi Arabia, just sort of generally, but also specifically with with MBS because of of the um, the actions he's taken over the last several years. So to now on the on the sort of heels of that, then be like, okay, we're going to develop this you know sort of uh, alliance like the the one we saw with you know South Korea, um, you know Japan, and the United States, where the leadership there. Uh, is actually like you know get they get along quite well and like one one can make an argument that actually it was a change in uh, leadership in both countries both Japan and South Korea that actually allowed this to happen. There it seems like the the sort of personalities and the individuals involved it makes sense that this would be a, a developing kind of alliance at that level. I don't see any of that with with Saudi Arabia. It seems to me that you know the Biden MBS relationship is so um, fraught with complexities and not a not a great relationship at least based on the, the sort of observations that we have of, of their interactions, it strikes me as a very odd fit. So that's, that's my first overall just sort of like gut reaction to at the leadership level, trying to make this happen with that particular uh, Saudi crown prince and with the baggage that the, the sort of Biden administration has with respect to Saudi Arabia. It strikes me as a difficult kind of uh, task or a difficult thing to, pu- to pull off. The other big question for me, though, is is I could see very much why Saudi Arabia would want to do this. It's a little less clear to me what the upshot is for the United States to, to have this sort of defense pact. There's no question that the, the idea of normalizing relations with um, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Israel, I think, would be good for the Middle East. I think it would be good for uh, the United States in that, from that perspective, because you know, if the United States wants to sort of have stability in the Middle East, and clearly some type of, of relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel would be good. I think it would also have uh, paid dividends when thinking about um, sort of balancing or countering Iran. Uh, so that I, th- I think that makes some sense. But a defense pact is is a is a pretty big step. I mean, the United States would be basically saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna protect you if you know some uh, you know cruise missiles you know come in and hit you. The United States will respond, and we will we will have. Um, if not boots on the ground, then, you know, maybe no fly zone or, or whatever the case is, depending on what the circumstances are, which puts, you know, risk to American service people. It's going to cost money. You know, it's, it's going to potentially drag the United States into a conflict that it might not want to get dragged into. So there's a, there's a potential that this is a defensive uh, pact that will just stabilize things. There's also a potential that the cost of this end up being pretty high if something unforeseen happens. And as we know, Unforeseen things have a tendency to happen every once in a while, particularly in the Middle East, where things are are a little bit complicated. So I just worry a little bit from a U.S. strategic perspective that the costs of this, while sort of on paper might not seem um, that that large, might actually end up outweighing the benefits that the United States is is going to see. Am I am I off base there, or, or what's what's your take on that? No, I, I think that's the, the, the kind of question a lot of people have when they see this story is, is why would we want to do this? What is the purpose of this kind of an initiative? So you mentioned a couple. Let me just roll through a few so we can kind of get them on the table and talk about whether they're worth this whole, this whole effort. So from the Biden administration's perspective, the kind of headline feature of uh, this agreement would be that it would be a part of normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which, you know, Peace in the Middle East. It's every U.S. president's dream is to bring peace to the Middle East. And uh, it's a, a good idea. I mean, 
you know, it's hard to be against peace in the Middle East. So, so this initiative would be kind of an exchange for a Saudi change of stance toward Israel. That has benefits for the United States broadly. And I think this administration and past administrations have seen the Middle East kind of eat up foreign policy resources and energy and initiatives. And everyone would love to say, we have a win here. We have a diplomatic win. Peace in the Middle East. That's great. And in addition to kind of the optics of it, it allows us to turn the page and focus on Asia pivot, right? Get out of the like building peace in the Middle East business and turn toward other what are seen as kind of more pressing foreign policy issues. That is a, a long held dream of administrations going back to the Obama administration. Let's pivot. Let us not deal with this anymore. Let's talk about Asia. So I think that's kind of the big kind of undercurrent to this initiative. There are other benefits to this sort of thing. Um, one is as a counter to China. So we've seen China building up its relationship with Saudi Arabia. It played a, a key role in kind of the latest round of diplomatic stuff happening in between Saudi Arabia and some some former adversaries. And uh, Saudi has new agreements to, regarding oil in China. And so one thing the United States can do to kind of push back against Chinese influence in, in the Gulf is to say, okay, um, we're going to have a, a real defense alliance with Saudi Arabia, something that you know China doesn't have. So that that's uh, helpful in that way. And then the last pillar of this, I think, is Iran. And as you mentioned, um, that is a kind of historic adversary of Saudi Arabia. And when you think about what is the most likely scenario under which the United States would have to involve U.S. military force in defense of Saudi Arabia, all those scenarios involve Iran. And the fact is, I think our calculus is something like if Iran were to get involved in a war with Saudi Arabia, we would very likely involve ourselves on the side of Saudi Arabia anyway. And so why not reap some of the diplomatic benefits of having this agreement in advance? Because this might actually forestall a conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, particularly if Iran continues down this road of developing nuclear technology, maybe even gets a nuclear weapon down the road. Having this defense pact in place then might help avoid an outbreak of hostilities between these two countries, which would be, you know, um, devastating to the kind of greater Middle East security environment. So I, I think those are the why. Why would we do this? But but I think it's still reasonable to ask, is this a good idea? Because there are so many obvious problems with this uh, with this idea, right? And the, the big one is like the optics of signing an agreement with um, with MBS, with this like person who is just so closely associated with human rights violations. And like when you read these articles about like the list of stuff that Saudi Arabia has done re just recently, killing migrants on the border, bombing civilians in Yemen, all this stuff, it, you know, is this a country that we want to be involved in a defense pact with? And the fact is, historically, that hasn't been a big deterrent for the United States in signing alliances and agreements, right? We've um, had agreements with all kinds of bad actors, but it should, in this more enlightened time, give us pause. Do we really want to be associated with this, with this leadership? There's the risk that a defense pact with Saudi Arabia gives Saudi Arabia more of a green light to do things in the regions that we do not approve of. So recent examples include involvement in Yemen and, and other places. 
It potentially lends additional credibility to the regime for its own kind of foreign policy things that we don't like. It affects U.S. credibility because here we have a regime that has openly defied U.S. wishes, particularly with regard to oil um, in, in recent years and very publicly kind of snubbing the Biden administration. And now here we are crawling back and asking for a defense pact for, for this agreement. And what is the what are the optics of that? Does that make the United States look kind of weaker on the international stage? And then the final piece of this is always, always for me, nuclear weapons. So one of the things that Saudi Arabia is asking for is U.S. support for Saudi's civilian nuclear power initiatives. Uh, as you know, Marcus, nuclear is a dual-use technology that um, is used to produce nuclear power that's good for the climate and, and good for providing power. But the same technology that we use for civilian nuclear power can be used for nuclear weapons. And there really isn't much of a distinction there. And so we have to be concerned about providing nuclear technology to countries who might someday want nuclear weapons because they can take that technology and it's just a couple minor adjustments and they're at a weapon. Um, and so Saudi is asking for the kind of nuclear technology that we have not in the past been willing to agree to because of its proliferation consequences. So, you know, there, there's the, that's the ledger for you, you know, the costs and the benefits. Where, what do you think? Would you pull the trigger on this if, if you were the president? No, I would, I would not. And I mean, I, I, I think part of the reason I would not is that is Israel, Saudi Arabia relations have actually been somewhat improving over the years. Um, I think in part because of Iran, like that's a, you know, they're, they're going to want to sort of like, you know, balance against uh, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, of course, is nervous about Iran getting a nuclear weapon. And it's talked about if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, then they're going to seek one and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, Israel and, and Saudi Arabia have found kind of common cause uh, with respect to that. And so I don't, I don't actually see a strong need for the United States to sort of be the spearhead here in terms of, of creating this, this alliance when things have been moving in that direction, moving more towards normalization uh, over time. I think the political cost for, for Biden um, in dealing with MBS, you know, that, that is going to be high. Yes, he gets the sort of peace in the Middle East with a big uh, asterisk next to it, we're going to talk about in a second. Um, and so I just don't I don't think that it's necessary. I think the United States can kind of get what it wants, so to speak, by having, you know, better relations with Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, by supporting their, you know, sort of communication and, and figuring out ways for, to you know, help them collaborate without signing this defense uh, pact. So I, I would not do it. And I think the costs are just simply too high. And I think there's too much uncertainty about the future. The reason I say asterisk is, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about yet when it comes to peace in the Middle East uh, is what Israel thinks about all this. One of the things that uh, Saudi Arabia has, has said, I think MBS stated it, is that the, the, the Palestinian issue is going to have to be solved or worked on or something like that as part of this normalization process. Well, that's kind of a big problem, right? That's kind of a big deal. Now, what, what that means to solve it uh, is open to interpretation, whether that's you know a, a two-state solution or whatever. But there's a lot of people in Israel, uh, I think, that would be uh, somewhat skeptical of, it, of a sort of normalization, a full normalization with Saudi Arabia. Uh, particularly if Saudi Arabia is pushing for more change for the Palestinians. So I, I don't see peace in the Middle East until the, the sort of Palestinian issue is, is worked out anyway. And, you know, it's not clear to me that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia are going to be able to get on the same page on exactly what it means to have more support for the Palestinians or the Palestinian state. I, I agree with that sentiment uh, that the, this, this agreement would not be peace in the Middle East as we used to we used to talk about it. But I'm also very skeptical that Saudi Arabia, that MBS cares about Palestinians. 
And so that Saudi Arabia is very unlikely in my mind to insist on something that Israel is unwilling to do um, when it comes to the, the Palestinian situation. It's just, you know, this is a regime that, um, yeah, the, the plight of the, uh, the oppressed uh, person is not kind of foremost in this regime's mind, in, in my view. I think that's fair. I think, and, and also the Palestinian issue also, you know, gets trotted out as a sort of political yeah. kind of hook when, when needed, you know, exactly. and, and then there's very little progress that actually happens. So we've seen that over, over and over again. So anyway, I mean, back to the main point. Yeah, I'm, I'm against it. Uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for, for Biden politically. I don't think it makes a lot of sense for the United States from a national security perspective. Uh, and I, and I worry what the, about the ramifications of it moving forward, but you know, like anybody else, I think better relations with Saudi Arabia and Israel would be, would be welcomed. I just think we've been moving in that direction anyway, so we don't need to have this pact. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm maybe a little more positive about it simply because of the deterrent effect on Iran, which I consider to be much more uh, of, a, of a threat um, and a worry. And so if this does have some deterrent um, effect on Iran, that would be good news. We could use all the help we can get on that front. And uh, the cost of this... You know, I, I listed some potential problems, right? But the real cost in terms of signing an agreement like this, it's not that high, given that, I, you know, I don't think there's any appetite for hosting more American troops in Saudi Arabia, for example, um, the way we do in Japan and South Korea. I think the kind of language of this defense agreement would be fuzzy enough that it wouldn't pull us into a conflict that we wouldn't otherwise have wanted to be in. So it may be that this is mostly a symbolic agreement anyway, in which case, why not bank the benefits that we get from a symbolic agreement? But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we'd have to kind of wait and see what exactly is being discussed. While we're on the topic of Saudi Arabia, we did have a question from, let's see, this is Katie in Anchorage, Alaska. Wow, Alaska. Holy smokes. That's, that's phenomenal. I love people from Alaska. Shout out to all the Alaska listeners. This is great. Uh, so Katie asks about sports washing. And sports diplomacy in the context of Saudi Arabia. This is something we've talked about before on this podcast, but um, it's never a bad time to talk about sports diplomacy, Professor Holmes. Um, I know this is near and dear to your heart. So will you, will you distinguish for, for me and for listeners the difference between what usually talk, talk about in terms of sports diplomacy and this concept of sports washing? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure there actually is a huge difference. It's more sort of like your interpretation of the intention uh, behind what's going on. I mean, nor normally when we think about sports diplomacy, we're talking about the sort of beneficial effects of having exchanges occur uh, on the on the field, right? So this can take the form of, you know, uh, Little League uh, World Classic, where you have little, you know, kids from, you know, Korea and Japan and Saudi Arabia or whatever all playing uh, in the, in sort of in, for common cause on, you know, in baseball, it can be the sort of ping pong diplomacy, which is, you know, one of the things that, that got a lot of attention in the thaw in relations between the United States and China. Uh, and we've talked about these, these before, but sports diplomacy is really sort of about the use of sports to kind of engender or build better understanding, reduce prejudice. Uh, and, and in, in extreme cases where there's like, you know, Soviet Union, United States, Cold War type stuff, you know, sort of try to create a little bit of a thaw in the in the you know the relations that are are quite poor and build up at least from a you know a ground level perspective a little bit of trust and, and understanding. Sports washing is more uh, sort of a, a attributed to the idea of using sports, sometimes sports diplomacy, but more generally uh, investment for or hosting sports events as a way of engendering kind of goodwill uh, and creating you know sort of one's 
state's, you know, super uh, uh, soft power kind of uh, display, right? So, for example, you know, when you when you host the Olympics, a lot of people have made the argument that what what the host nation kind of gets out of it is everybody for two weeks is watching on their TV and seeing your nice, bright new buildings and how great your, you know, infrastructure looks and everybody's happy and, you know, the opening and closing ceremony, everybody's, you know, sort of shaking hands and waving and singing and blah, 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 blah. And they, that allows them to sort of take the eye off maybe the human rights violations that are occurring down the street or the people who are, you know, being oppressed on the other side of the, of the city. You don't see any of that. You don't hear any of that. And so what you're what you are seeing is like very positive. It's sort of like a, a branding exercise uh, for the state. Now, the sports washing bit uh, kind of builds into that idea, the, the sort of intentional uh, use of of hosting these types of events for precisely that purpose. Right. So if I'm Saudi Arabia or I'm China or, or whoever, I might realize I have a, a sort of PR problem. I have a soft power problem. Uh, I'm, I'm accused of human rights violations. People aren't coming to my country for tourism. I need to sort of get out there and change the, the, the image that people have of, of my country. How can I do that? Well, one way is just to host a big, exciting sports event and hope that it sort of has the intended effect of changing people's perceptions uh, about, your, about your country. Yeah. And I mean, th- this is not like a new thing, though. I should just know when you see like car companies advertising on uh, football games, part of it is this, right? Part of it is advertising their products, but part of it is just having the brand associated with the football, with NFL. And then when you're watching it, you might think, you might not think anything of it. But then later when you see a, a Ford dealership, you know, one of the associations that comes to mind is, oh, I lo- I, you know, I love watching football and it, it makes you feel better toward that brand. And I think that's part of the, the idea of kind of associating your image with something that's already beloved, beloved. Right. And it's, it's very much kind of premise on this, like sort of subconscious, you know, almost emotional kind of reaction. It's like, I'm, I'm watching the Olympics. I'm, I feel good. These countries are, you know, you know, playing these, these sports and getting along. And it just so happens to be in Beijing. And now I'm associating in my mind, Beijing with this good feeling, you know, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. So, a lot of people might wonder, well, does it work? <laughs> you know, is it, is it yeah. the case that like, you know, actually, yeah, like by, by engaging in, you know, effective sports watching strategies, you can sort of increase your GDP by uh, X percent or whatever. And unfortunately, this is one of these areas of social science where um, it's actually really difficult to isolate a causal kind of effect here for reasons that you might intuitively understand, right? It's like uh, sports watching by its nature is sort of a, a sort of, vague concept to begin with um it's it's a concept that is is sort of an intervention that takes place where it's hard to measure the direct impact i mean you might be like well okay i can measure people's perceptions of china let's say before and after the olympics um but those perceptions are going to be affected by so many different you know confounding variables that it'd be very difficult to say it was because of the beijing beijing olympics that favorability of china went up you know by 0.002% or whatever whatever the case is so historically, it's been very difficult to, to sort of show that this matters at all. And frankly, you know, soft power uh, arguments and soft power evidence is, is often very difficult to do just more generally. It's not just sports washing, sort of any sort of public diplomacy attempt to kind of craft your country in a particular way to promote a particular image. Very difficult to show like, independently what the causal effect of those of those efforts are. So there have been, you know, case studies and sort of you know, process tracing and more qualitative attempts to do this. But the data on the sort of quantitative side where, where you might want to see some data like public opinion polls and stuff like that uh, has been really tricky to, to, to get at. I will say the, there are some studies that have looked at this uh, experimentally. 
And so one thing you can, you can imagine a, a study doing would be to give a one group of, of you know, say students in a lab, uh, a particular type of stimulus, right? So they watch maybe something that happened in the Olympics uh, in Beijing, and they're, they're sort of treated with uh, sports washing as, as the intervention. Another group doesn't see that thing. They do something else entirely or, or whatever. And you can measure changes over time with the two groups and see whether or not the ones that got that sports washing intervention um, did change their, their views. And there's some evidence along those lines that uh, these types of, of stimuli do, do matter. But it's just really difficult to show in the real world for all the all the reasons I discussed. That, you know, basically there's a, there's a ton of confounders that are gonna gonna affect this. Um, the last thing I'll say is, I think sometimes people will make the mistake of seeing an effect that's not actually there, and it's actually more about um, something else. So U.S.-China relations, for example, uh, are very complicated, and and the big movers in what's going on between you know U.S. and China affecting popular opinion or public opinion tends to be things like what's going on in the economy? Is there a trade war going on? Who's the president? You know, when Donald Trump was, was president, you know, there was a moment where U.S. views of China actually uh, got better uh, because he was trying to reach out to Xi Jinping and, and you know, sort of try to get, get a little bit more of a normalization of, of relations between the United States and, and China. So there was a moment there where things uh, went well. And then we had a trade war with China and then that affected the public opinion towards China. So I think these kind of bigger macro structural uh, types of things, including the leadership of, of both countries, probably affect the, the public opinion and favorability of these countries way more than, than sports washing uh, do. And sometimes they're correlated with, with the sports washing. So you might think, oh, the, the U.S.-China relationship is getting better. Uh, just so happens that we had a Beijing Olympics around the time. It's not actually the Olympics doing the work, but it's more, you know, so these bigger uh, structural factors. So that's that's the way I, I look at it. I think sports watching can be effective, but I think it's really difficult to show empirically uh, what the actual precise causal effect is. Sports watching comes up in the context of Saudi Arabia because we've seen Saudi Arabia um, make kind of big investments in soccer and golf recently. So Saudi has paid a lot of money to lure European famous soccer players who are playing in, in Europe to Saudi Arabia, to, to their own team. Um, and that's kind of made a lot of news, big investments there. And then for a while, Saudi Arabia was sponsoring a kind of competing pro golf tournament uh, to compete with the PGA Tour. And then it was kind of recently announced this summer. And I think we talked a little bit about this on, on the podcast that there was a merger. There will be a merger between the Saudi sponsored league and the PGA Tour. And this generated a lot of controversy. Several uh, well-known players on the tour had refused to participate in the, the Saudi tour on human rights grounds. And so now this merger is happening and they're going to kind of be forced to be involved with Saudi Arabia. And so uh, various parties are unhappy about this. And, you know, and as a result of these efforts, uh, Saudi Arabia has been accused of sports washing. And I found this uh, interview this is like from yesterday, I think. And I'll, I'll put this I'll link to this article in the in the show notes. But uh, apparently on Fox News, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, quote, embraced accusations of sports washing to rehabilitate the country's image as the kingdom beefs up its spending and influence in the major international sports of golf and soccer. Quote, well, if sports washing is going to increase my GDP by way of one percent, I will continue doing sports washing. <laughs> End quote. He said right. during an interview with Fox News that aired Wednesday night. Quote, I don't care. I'm aiming for another one and a half percent. Call it whatever you want. We're going to get that one and a half percent, he said. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. I mean, Love that's, that's he, he clearly he clearly thinks that there's a um, a link between sports washing and, and GDP, and maybe there is. Maybe there. Is. I, I would just say it's kind of difficult to show. I think the other the other problem too is that the strategy often backfires. I mean, one of the things that happened when Saudi Arabia came out and they're like they're they're going to do the what's the name of the tour? The golf tour? The Luft tour? The Live tour? Live, Live tour? What happened almost immediately was people were like, "Aha, sports washing." So, like, if if you weren't aware of what some of Saudi Arabia's criticisms, you certainly were after the the sort of like, "Aha, they're doing sports washing." Idea came to the fore, and maybe actually it backfires from uh, you know from the perspective of people becoming more aware of some of the problems that the country has, uh, and it, that's not the intended effect. So, you know, it's 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 tricky to to sort of tease out exactly what's going on here. I mean, I will say other examples. You know, like Russia hosted the was it the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Uh, I don't Mm -hmm. think many analysts would argue that Russia got a big boost in uh, sort of favorability rating. Let's let's put it or perception uh, on the basis of that. On the other hand, you know, I think the 2008 Beijing Olympics was sort of China's um, you know sort of moment where they 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 I think it was 2008 where they basically said, look, we are we are you know, sort of a rising power. We're joining the sort of, of club of, of, you know, world powers. And I, I remember watching those Olympics and looking at their infrastructure and seeing these, you know, that huge stadium that they built and the, the fancy, you know, pyrotechnics. I'm not sure that's the right word, but the fancy sort of stuff there. And it was like, wow, like this is actually really impressive. So that might be a case of actually it, it, it sort of having a, a positive effect. I think often though, um, some of the audiences for this, and I don't think it's true in the Saudi Arabia case, but I do think it's true in China. I think often the audiences are domestic. Right. Because you want to you want if you're Xi Jinping, for example, you want to show your domestic constituencies that you're a a strong leader, that you're a capable leader, that you want to have like sort of a stroking of nationalism. Um, All that kind of stuff at a domestic level can help uh, even an authoritarian regime because they they at some level do care uh, about, you know, nationalism and, and the prestige that you get from these types of events. I love this MBS interview because the the obvious thing to say when someone asks you about this is. No, we're, either we have nothing to sports wash because we're a good country and, you know, that was one way to go. Or we, we actually support these sports and we, we want to, you know, we want to bring these sports to our, our people or we want to support international golf. Like, there are a lot of answers you could give to this question that aren't like, yeah, we basically we have a horrible human rights record. We don't intend to change that. So we're trying to paper over it by investing in international golf. Which is like just a, on the face of it, a, a very bizarre way to answer that question. But I, I, I guess I admire his candor. I don't know. Right. Or he might say, look, I don't agree that we have human rights violations, but there's a perception out there that we do. And so to, to counter that perception, we're going to try to create a new perception. And yeah. we're going to you know, say this is who we are. So you could interpret it that way, too. I, 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 you kind of got to give the guy credit for at least <laughs> having the candor. If he really believes that you know, they're doing sports washing for, for reasons to, to sort of paper over their human rights violations and stuff. I mean, that is, that is incredible honesty that I don't think uh, most leaders would admit to. I, I will say I am skeptical of the mechanism by which these investments lead to a 1% increase in GDP. Um, 1% so sounds like a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. I think in, in actual money, it's a lot. So I, I, I'm uh, skeptical of that. I, I don't know. Even the most optimistic takes on these, on these attempts are not going to yield that kind of a, a cashback uh, value. So... So there's been a lot of pushback on the uh, PGA Live merger. Prominent U.S. policymakers have pushed back on it. Uh, senators talking about how this isn't the same as like a, the average business deal, right? That that what this is is a, 
an attempt by a country to burnish its image, to influence the perceptions of its image in the United States, um, and that it, as such, we should think of it more as like an influence operation along the lines of misinformation or disinformation, which I still don't, don't know the difference between. But, you know, these kind of uh, propaganda efforts, more than we should think of it as a business merger that would be subject to that kind of regulation. So the idea here among those kind of pushing this, this, um, this story is that this is a foreign policy question, not a you know, business question. And it's kind of an interesting uh, idea, you know, how do you treat influence operations like this? Is this really something that, you know, the U.S. foreign policy establishment should be involved in? The other thing that's been in the news recently, Marcus, is Ukraine's President Zelensky is here in the United States right now in Washington talking to people. And he was yesterday or the day before in New York speaking at the U.N. General Assembly, making an impassioned plea for assistance for his country against the aggression of Russia, criticizing the UN and its structure, criticizing the idea that Russia has a veto in the UN Security Council and laying out a very specific plan for how assistance to Ukraine now can push back this uh, threat to Russia that, uh, you know, threatens the kind of fabric of, of country sovereignty in the world. Whenever there is a big speech at the U.N., um, we at Cheap Talk like to have a conversation about whether these kinds of things matter, as this is pretty much always our conversation. Marcus, what do you think? Is it, is it worth it for uh, President Zelensky to fly all the way out here and give a talk at, at the U.N. General Assembly? What does that get him? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm a skeptic of the United Nations, like many, many people. I think the United Nations uh, sort of represents a structure, or the structure represents a period of time. Uh, that has like long passed and it's in need of reform. I think the Security Council, uh, as many people have pointed out, is sort of archaic in some ways and uh, not really suited for the, the sort of situation we find ourselves in right now with the Russia and Ukraine, for example. But I, I want to make a point, not, not really about the UN itself, um, but rather about political speeches, because I think sometimes there's a tendency for analysts and, and you know, scholars kind of like just roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, no speech. You know, Zelensky's given plenty of speeches. Uh, Biden spoke yesterday. Biden gives plenty of speeches. Uh, none of this stuff, stuff really matters. And so you, you might even say it's cheap talk. You might even say it's cheap talk. And, and indeed, many people would, would argue that. But I think, you know, historically, you know, some political speeches are incredibly uh, important and, and can sort of change the tenor uh, of, a, of a conflict or can change the way that people think about uh, what's going on in the world, right? So just two quick examples. The one that I talked about in my, in my class, I think is, is probably one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century is Ronald Reagan in 1983, calling the Soviet Union the, the evil empire, uh, and basically drawing a line in the sand and saying, we're, you know, in the West, we have principles, we, we don't like communism, you know, we support democracy, whatever. The evil empire, uh, the Soviet Union is very different. Um, and, and it's not that we just have political differences. It's not that our ideologies are different, but in fact, no, they are, they are evil. They are the, the, at their core, this is a this is a system. Was that the, also the axis of evil speech, or was that was that? No, that's wrong? my next one. That's my oh, next sorry. one. So that's after, you know shortly after September eleventh. Uh, uh, you know George W. Bush gives his famous sort of axis of evil speech. There's three you know uh, sort of pillars to this axis. It's it's Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Hmm. And you know uh, about four hundred days later, I think the United States invaded Iraq. Um, and so if you're you know North Korea, or you're Iran. You know what might you be thinking? Well, what you might be thinking is that you're next. And so, you know, Iran then, you know, might 
have more reason than ever to try to pursue a nuclear weapon. And North Korea, same thing. Like, I, I don't want to be invaded. Uh, I can prevent invasion by having a nuclear weapon. So, so political speeches often, um, I think, crystallize. It's not that it, the, these political speeches change the sort of relations on the ground in the sense that, you know, it, whether or not George W. Bush calls these three countries an axis of evil or not, you know, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea have, you know, sort of set in stone, like, security uh, issues, let's call them. Um, but it crystallizes things, and I think it changes the way that people kind of think about a particular conflict. So when I think about a speech at the United Nations, I'm thinking about, like, what is the actual goal here? Like, what is, what is the actor trying to do? Maybe it's sort of reframing uh, a conflict. Maybe it's about trying to get people to think about uh, something in a, in a particular way. But I think often it can kind of boil down to three or four kind of main uh, uh, goals. One is international legitimacy, right? So the United Nations, while it has many problems, is still the United Nations. It's still a multilateral body. The, the General Assembly in particular uh, is, is basically all of the countries in the world in one room listening in a very, uh, you know, sort of uh, a dramatic way to what's, to what's going on. And I think that's a mechanism for providing what the speaker is saying um, a little bit of legitimacy. So that's one of the reasons why they would go to the United Nations. I think it's also about uh, domestic signaling. So, you know, why would, would Biden take time out of his, his busy day uh, to go speak in front of the General Assembly if the General Assembly doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot? Well, one of it is, you know, showing your domestic constituents um, something about the importance of this, this issue, right? You're going to go and do something, you're going to give a speech that will allow them to sort of signal to, to uh, uh, your domestic constituency that you, you care about this. Going back to George W. Bush, one of the reasons I think that he went to the United Nations uh, before the Iraq war, knowing that they didn't have the votes to, to be able to get a resolution uh, to take out Saddam Hussein and invade and all that, was he wanted to show his domestic constituents that he tried everything. I went to the United Nations. I made my argument. I, we did exactly what you're supposed to do. And they said, you know, no, but I tried. I tried to do all the things. So, so the, the sort of political message is we did everything that we, we could and nobody was listening and they, they didn't understand. I think lastly, it sort of provides a little bit of sort of like political like cover, right? It's like you, you for, for allies or for, you know, a, an alliance that's a little, little tricky, you're basically saying like, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, you know, make this argument in front of people and seek a coalition. And that coalition can get bigger because of that, because the, the countries are watching and they see other countries join the coalition. They're like, okay, like I can, I can do this because I'm not alone. So when you have this kind of multilateral framework, you give a speech in front of a, a large audience like this, you're more likely, I think, to build a stronger coalition. Now, it didn't work for George W. Bush, uh, but I think oftentimes you do kind of see countries sort of joining in once you get the, the sort of you know, political message out there, provides cover for, for allies to join something that maybe they didn't want to do, uh, but they're, they're going to do it now because of this, this multilateral side. So I am not uh, a big UN guy. And I think that, you know, oftentimes uh, these, these speeches at the UN can be, uh, you know, sometimes they can be quite dull. Sometimes they can be sort of non-effective. Sometimes they don't really move the needle at all. But I think if you sort of think about what this, the actors are trying to do and think about the role of speeches more generally, then I think that they do, you know, provide uh, uh, something of import, I would say. Okay, I strongly disagree and in fact, I think that the UN does have a lot of values. We disagree all over the place here. But, this is great. But the value of the UN is not in somebody giving a speech to the General Assembly. I think the value is elsewhere. Happy to talk more about that. Maybe we should even 
you know, pick that up. Uh, that sounds in, like a great next, uh, topic for next week in the next podcast. But I, I do want to say that the speeches thing, I strongly disagree that the speeches themselves have a lot of impact. I think um, you may be getting confused because Being confused. Yes. I think it's confusing to you that the speech happens and then there's some amount of diplomatic activity that follows the speech. And you're thinking, oh, well, it must have been the speech that did it when, in fact, the speech was timed to coincide with the diplomatic uh, initiative. Right. So like, wow, president gave this speech and then a bunch of bunch of countries got on board that coalition. Could it be that even had the president not given the speech, the diplomatic activity to get the people on board the coalition would have proceeded equally? Right. So the, the speech is timed to like contribute to the overall diplomatic initiative. That doesn't mean the speech is the thing doing the work. Why would Biden give a speech at the U.N.? Biden once gave a speech at my local sandwich shop in Arlington, Virginia. Right. Does, does, is that sending the same? <laughs> Biden will give a speech anywhere. Right. This is not uh, this is not shocking that you get a bunch of people together and the president's like, oh, I should go give a speech there. That's what presidents do. That is not particularly meaningful. And I don't think it necessarily does a lot for like public opinion around international issues. The public attention to those issues is already so low as to be off the charts. And I, I don't think this has an appreciable effect on bringing it back up. The other part of the speech thing that I think is really interesting is how kind of U.S. centric, even even English centric this perspective is, because your your examples are all U.S. presidents. Why are the U.S. presidents? Because they spoke in English and you can understand their speeches. OK, and. I don't know. Is there like, are there scholars in other countries that speak different languages saying, yes, the, this president's speech at the, at the UN had this big effect on the international community? Or is this solely a U.S. president story? And not even all the U.S. presidents is just like just Reagan, right? Like, like there, you can't even pick out UN speeches by many other presidents that have been affected. You know, one of them, the George W. Bush speech, it was clearly not effective in terms of building a coalition uh, for Iraq. So I, I'm, I'm skeptical of this on, on a bunch of grounds. I think you picked out kind of the wrong part of the UN uh, enterprise as the thing that's doing the work here. You're such a downer. Jeez, Jeffrey. Okay, so if it makes no difference, why, so why are politicians, why are they just giving these speeches at all? Why do we have a general assembly? Why do people... But, you know, they haven't met a microphone they didn't like. They, they'll go anywhere you tell them there's an I audience. I find that very hard to believe. I don't think these leaders are stupid. I don't think that they're doing things just willy-nilly. Okay, the, the, the Arlington sandwich shop example, I guess, notwithstanding. Seems to me like when, when uh, leaders take intentional action, they're probably doing it for a reason. I think Zelensky, who's not a U.S. president, by the way, gave a speech at the General Assembly for a reason. I think his, his thought was, if I can continue to keep on the same message, which is you need to support us. You know, this is about you, too. This is not just about about uh, Ukraine and also the reasons why we need to continue you know, supporting him. That's that's beneficial to the Ukrainian cause, right? If he thought that there was no value whatsoever, like you seem to do, about giving a political speech to the UN, he wouldn't be doing it. He wouldn't be doing it. He's got better things to do. He's at war for crying out loud. But instead, he flew to the United States, went to New York, got up in front of a bunch of people at the General Assembly, and gave a, a, a well, like, impassioned speech. I think there's a reason for that. By the way, it's not just U.S. presidents. So one of the most uh, uh, famous examples of a U.N. speech, Ahmadinejad, do you remember that speech back when he was, you know, making uh, allegations about, you know, September 11th conspiracies and, and people walked out uh, and basically, no, you know, I don't remember sp- that. 
people people walked out because <laughs> what this guy is saying is ridiculous. He then was known, you know, not just as you know, sort of this this you know reckless tyrant, but also he was known for having been you know sort of dressed down by the General Assembly itself. Like that was an important moment of protest, saying that we don't we don't appreciate what you're doing, we don't approve of what you're is doing. Is that what he was known for? That, that I, well, if, in terms of, in terms of UN speeches, maybe by you. I mean, I think. I, I, I think you're increasing the importance of these UN speeches way out of proportion to how, you know, certainly the public, but also like the international community views it. Well, I'm not making the argument that they're more important than nuclear weapons, certainly. However, I, I don't think they're useless and I think that they serve, serve a function. And every once in a while, a speech comes along that I think truly does capture something. Ronald Reagan got a lot of, of criticism in 1983 after he, he called the Soviet Union the evil empire, right? Why? Because there were a lot of people in the United States that wanted to, to have rapprochement with the Soviet Union. They wanted to have better relations. And here he gets up and says, these guys at their core are just evil. I think that has an effect. The Soviets certainly didn't like it. And I do think that that has, a, a, has an effect on how uh, the relationship plays out from there. But you're right in the sense that it's very difficult to sort of isolate any kind of uh, causal thing. And it might be in many cases that diplomacy, you know, sort of behind closed doors uh, is what's moving things and the speech is timed and all that. I, I agree with that. And I, and I would even grant that most political speeches, most things you're going to hear at the General Assembly probably are not that important. But I save, importantly, for these rare moments that come along where a speech in front of the General Assembly can be really monumental. That the that Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech was. Oh, that, that was a good UN? one too. That was a Is good one, it? but that wasn't at the UN. That was in Berlin. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I like political speeches. What can I tell you? I, th- I, I, I think they they sort of they show you something about the thought process of of the person making the speech, and I think they also uh, have effects beyond that that moment. So, didn't Kennedy give a speech like "Ich bin ein Berliner"? What yeah, was that? The he UN. Did. He did. <laughs> I do think we need to discuss the United Nations in a little bit more depth because I, I get the sense we disagree. This is actually quite good because I think we disagree a lot about the role of the United Nations. And, and I, I think it's a pathological organization, but I, we, we, could, we can get into it next time. That's good. I, let, let's try to do that next time. I think we should, we should call a halt for today. Um, Marcus, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I should say to everyone, keep those questions coming. We're, we're getting thanks to everyone who submitted a question. We're we're kind of working through them. And despite what Professor Holmes tells you in class, students of Professor Holmes, you can send your questions and comments and um, mentions of where Professor Holmes was wrong to cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. We get those. We don't respond to all of them, but we get them and we're, we're kind of putting them in the hopper for future episodes. So we do appreciate that. Um, you can also leave a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Um, and we'll put you on the air if you can um, kind of keep it. Uh, family appropriate in your in your message and i just want to end with one last shout out to alaska i mean that that question was great and i and i'm I'm happy that we are you know moving into other time zones i think this is fantastic it'd be great if we could get an international question this is an international relations podcast if you're if you happen to be living in japan or argentina or 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 anywhere that's not the united states well even except canada then let us know. Send us a question. What's going on in your country? According to Spotify, we're 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 big in Japan, so we're big hopefully, in Japan. Uh, right. um, we can get some some Japanese listeners. But tell us what's going on in your country, and tell us how the you know what 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 your country thinks about what's happening uh, at the moment. Absolutely. Thanks again, Marcus. We'll see everybody next time. Uh, how are you? How are you? How are your uh, your quads? How's how how was the the run? All right, Jeffrey. So let me give you a little. Uh, 
race recap, a race report, if you will. So as you know, I was over in Scotland, uh, in the Highlands. For those of you that don't know uh, Scotland, you know, sort of like Edinburgh, Glasgow, sort of the, the industry areas in the south. Uh, and then in the north is just like small towns, villages, and lots of mountains or, or you know, the Scottish uh, people call them Monroes, like these like, you know, kind of, they're not mountains. It's not like going to like, you know, Colorado, but you know, they're, they're, they're pretty big mountains, hills, whatever. And, um, uh, and this race was in the, in the highlands and the hills. And so it's about three hour drive from Edinburgh, two and a half hours from Glasgow. And it's sort of like an area that is just like really rich in nat- natural beauty and like waterfalls everywhere and all that kind of stuff. There's a mountain there by the name of Ben Nevis. And Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in the UK. You might be thinking like, that's not all that impressive UK, like you know, the mountains, but actually it's pretty tall. Like it's, it's, it's not easy getting up that thing. And the race that I participated in was called the Ben Nevis Ultra Marathon. And it's part of this like weekend of, of running events. And they have like, you know, short distances, long distances, but the ultra marathon is like the, the big sort of like keynote speaker of the weekend. Uh, if that, if we translate keynote speaker into like running events, it's like the premier running event. And the idea is that you go uh, run up a couple of mountains before you get to Ben Nevis, go up Ben Nevis, down Ben Nevis, and then come back. Uh, and it's about 52 K, which is about 31 and a half, 32 miles. And last year I did this event and, and, and the, before I, wait, I, I tell you how I did last year, they have very strict uh, kind of time cutoffs. And the reason they do that is they don't want people like on the mountain after dark. And so like you have to be able to meet these, these aggressive time cutoffs to be able to continue the race. Last year, my first time running it, I did not know much about the race. I was kind of going in blind a little bit. And I made it up and over Ben Nevis, but I got timed out at the bottom of Ben Nevis, the checkpoint. I could not continue. It was at 3 o'clock was the, the deadline. I got there at like 3.06 or something like that. So I missed it by like six minutes. I was like, darn. So I did the, like, the hard part. I got over Ben Nevis, but I, I wasn't able to continue to finish the race. This year, I went back for revenge. Uh, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to train properly. I'm going to get my revenge on this course. I will finish. And everything was going great on Saturday. The race is on Sunday. On Saturday, the weather was absolutely beautiful. Like not a cloud in the sky. You could see like for miles and miles, sunny, like Scotland doesn't experience this weather ever. It's probably like the nicest day Scotland's ever seen. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. That night, a storm system moved in. And Sunday morning, when my race started, the weather was horrendous, like 40 mile an hour winds. There were just a lot of, you know, wind in your rain in your face and like, you know, not necessarily technically uh, like hail, but it kind of felt that way, like hurtful rain, you know, rain that like hurts. Do they adjust the time cutoffs to to adjust for the conditions or is it just? No, no, because, you know, the, the, the sun and the rotation of the earth and all that, they don't, it doesn't care. Don't you know, care. it's going to be yeah. dark. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, uh, uh, the race starts, I get up and over Ben Nevis faster than last year. I get to the checkpoint well under like at two forty. I had like 20 minutes to spare, but they, they, when we came into the checkpoint, I was with a group of like two or three people. They said like, can you guys come over here and gather together? Because the weather is so bad, we're changing to the bad weather route for the return, meaning we're not going to go up and over this other like mountain on the way back. We're going to take the, the West Highland Way, which is kind of like a, 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 a walking trail that like grandmothers and like babies do. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. it's, it's not I mean, it's hilly. Something you might see me on on a, on a nice weekend. Yeah, exactly. You could you could you could probably do this. You could probably <laughs> walk the West Highland Way. Um, so we get to the bottom and they're like, OK. The, the, the route has changed. 
and the weather was still horrendous and everything. So, so I ended up like finishing the race like very quickly because the second half was so much easier than it normally is. Uh. So Jeffrey, this is a situation of sort of mixed emotions for me. On the one hand, it's very nice to have finished the race. It's very nice to have completed the race. It was super nice to get to the checkpoint like a full like 30 minutes quicker uh, than I did last year. But it's tremendously disappointing to not be able to finish the race, like the route that I wanted to to finish. And it's like left just a little bit of a hole in my heart uh, because of that, you know? So it's 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 really tricky. It's like I'm I'm happy, but I'm sad and I'm disappointed. I wouldn't be as disappointed were it not for the fact that this is the last year that this this company is actually having this race. So, like, next year, they're not going to do it. And the year after that, they're going to go to some other location. They, they've been doing it in, in Ben Nevis for the last few years. They really like it, but the infrastructure is not – it can't support, like, the growth of the, of the race. And they want to be able to have more people take part. That area can't support it. So they're going to go to some other place in Scotland. So it's conceivable that another company will come in and run this uh, race again and the same route and, and all that. But it's also conceivable that this will never happen again, and I will never get a chance to to finish the the actual legitimate uh, route. Marcus, if, if there's one thing I've learned from the John Wick movies over yes. the years, it's yes. that when you set out to get revenge, yes, you you very rarely leave satisfied. You know, I'm not sure I understand the reference, but I take your point. Yeah, it's not it's not revenge. Well, it's revenge in a sense. But but this year was revenge. I think the next time I do it, if I'm ever able to do it, it's just about like wholeness, like like completeness, finishing something like in its its like intended state. You know, I will now look back on this race and think that I completed the Ben Nevis Ultra, but with an asterisk next to it. It's like the cheaters in baseball. You know, it's right. like all the people got caught using steroids. Like you know, uh, they're in the they're in the Hall of Fame, but there's an asterisk. You know, but maybe you should stop looking to these outside authorities to give you this validation and try to have some intrinsic sense of your own worth and value. Right. Like mm. you don't need you don't need this company's red like stamp to tell you that you're a good person. Right. You know, you're a good person. And yeah, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't need to be like seeking, seeking validation left and right from all these external forces. Do you, is your sense that this goes back to my childhood? Like, what, what is it about me that Tell I Tell me about your this? relationship with your parents, Marcus. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is like, I, 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 you're right, of course. I shouldn't, I shouldn't strive for these things. But, you know, it's, 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 it is, it's not even actually the validation that I want. I don't need, I don't need anybody to know. I, this is ironic because I'm telling the entire world on a podcast about this. But, like, well. Our 11 listeners. I mean, <laughs> I don't need like people to be like, gee whiz, uh, Marcus, that's great. In fact, a couple students today after class, I like, came up to me and said, hey, congratulations and run them out. I, I'm like embarrassed. Like, I don't want I don't want people congratulating me. So it's almost like the opposite of validation in, in, from an external perspective. Like, I don't mean like talking about it, uh, despite the fact that I'm doing that right now. It's more just like internal, like the challenge that I set myself. I want to be able to complete that challenge, not because of the, the fame and the glory, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but just the sense of like you know, challenging oneself and being able to like meet a challenge. That's, that's the, the value I get out of it. Um, and it's just frustrating that this company. So if you, Jeff, why don't you see if we can like, dig up some investors? I want to run this race again next year. Uh, I want to create a, a racing company and I want to figure out a way to do this for no other reason than to just, you know, be able to, to say I completed the course. I think this would be a good side hustle for you. And we could even market a, a companion treadmill designed to mimic the <laughs> the elevation changes and the terrain. 
I need a partner, though. Uh, I would do it with you. I don't want to do it alone. There are actually, seriously speaking, I think, uh, and, and for the listeners out there, don't steal my money-making ideas. I do think this is a growing industry. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity to get in on the ground floor of some of these, you know, ultra marathons. Um, it's, it's just, it's booming at the moment. And, and it's having a, it's having like a, 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 a I would say renaissance, but it, to have a renaissance, it had to have had a birth before. Um, but it's like having like a, a definite sort of like moment of energy. And I want to capitalize on that. I think a race, by the way, the Colonial Parkway, we run from like Jamestown to Yorktown or Yorktown to Jamestown or back and forth. I think that would be epic. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, maybe you should start closer to home. What's the tallest mountain in Williamsburg, Virginia? <laughs> I think it's that, I, th I think it's, you know, in the Sunken Garden, how it's like <laughs> the, the slope, you know, you go down. I think it's the hill to get up to the, like, where the buildings are from the Sunken Garden. That's Run the, up that's and down our... every flight of stairs at the College of William and Mary. Right. That is the steepest and tallest mountain we have is in the Sunken Garden. Of the many get rich quick schemes that we have explored on this podcast, I, th I think this one might be the the, the worst idea um, in terms of well, running a, running a race in Scotland from here. I think maybe oh, right. we're, we're better off. I like the idea of, of doing a local event just to just to test the waters and see if this thing will pay for itself. All right. Well, now that we have that on tape, you know, I think we should I think we should uh, put together our our. Well, you know, what we could have we could have like a cheap talk race like a cheap talk 5k and so for all of the students who are listening all of the alumni they'll come back to williamsburg random people on the internet you know you can come to us uh in williamsburg and we'll do like a cheap talk 5k we'll have t-shirts yeah, that's great we'll have, we'll have bibs we'll have uh we don't do medals i mean they do medals i i, I prefer statues remember they used to get like statues they don't do that anymore everybody gets a medal but we yeah. will have statues we'll have a statue of you and me with he headphones on yeah, like a, like a trophy. It'd be great. Yeah. And there'll be no prize money, but there will be an entry fee. <laughs> of course. That <laughs> makes total, <laughs> total sense. Like, that's like my son's fantasy league, you know? <laughs> it's like, you just you give him right. the money. What is this money going to get you? Well, it's not going to get you anything, but it, it's... Uh... And I mean, frankly, the, the, the entry fee could be atrocious, too. It could be high because yeah. we'll, people will, will people definitely come Just based on this. the Cheap Talk name recognition. Alone. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, we got some name recognition. So anyway, Jeff, you know, that's my, that's my, that was my weekend. You know, uh, it was great to be in Scotland. Mixed emotions on the outcome, um, but it was, a, it was definitely a fun time. Well, congratulations on finishing a version of Thank this you. race. You remember how we that. said this was going to be like a, like a tight, uh, tight episode where we just got right down oh, to it's business? Already, yeah, <laughs> we're already 20 minutes in. Well, this is what the people <laughs> yeah. want. I mean, this is, this is what the people, well. I'm not sure about that.